My name is Clem Hutton-Mills and I am a Client Advisor and Managing Director at Rothschild & Co Wealth Management. We are pleased to share with you a previously broadcast conversation with Lord Mark Sedwell, Senior Advisor to Rothschild & Co. He and I had a wide-ranging discussion across the domestic and foreign agenda, covering his recent experience at the G7 Summit in Cornwall, the challenges facing the UK and our government, climate change, Russia and China. As always, please do get in touch with your client advisor should you have any questions at all. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Lord Mark Sedwell. Mark, good morning. Clem, good morning. Good to be with you. Very good to have you here too. Very good to have you here. Mark, let's start easy and big. I think the last 20 years have been a period of real instability. 9-11, the financial crisis, coronavirus. Is big government here to stay? I think active and interventionist government is here to stay. Whether big government is here to stay, I think, is a, is a separate question uh, in the sense of the scale of government intervention in the economy, the level of tax and expenditure and so on. But definitely interventionist government is here to stay. And I think that's partly a feature of globalisation. There are these events that you've talked about already, um, big events like 9-11, actually the most important of all big, probably being the financial crisis um, uh, because it, it reset people's expectations of government and of the economy. And then coronavirus, essentially, and, and, and the COVID crisis uh, really accentuated that. And so there's a strong expectation, I think worldwide, that government is uh, there to intervene, to be the um, uh, guarantor of last resort for, uh, for the economy, and is necessary in order to be able to protect people's economic, health, financial, um, and human security, as well as their national security and, and uh, uh, the integrity of the, uh, of the international system. So intervention is an active government, I think it's definitely here to stay. Um, whether governments decide to do that through a mixture of regulation or direct intervention, at what scale they do it, I think is going to be uh, the dialogue of politics over the next decade or so. Interesting. Interesting. You mentioned taxation. I'm sure our clients will be interested to know what your thoughts are about the path of taxation here in the UK. Lower and flatter, or more and higher. Well, I think I mean the, these. This is right at the heart of a political of political dialogue. Mm. Um, I've always been in favour of simplification. Mm. I think our tax system is uh, tax code is too complex. It's got larger and larger, and um, you know, any of us who have to um, fill out even a personal tax return, let alone the array of tax lawyers and accountants we all employ, uh, will realise that it is a highly complex system. So personally, I'd like to see a uh, lower rates. Uh, more comprehensive, simpler, as, as, uh, uh, as best as uh, possible. We have to remember it must remain competitive and therefore the global minimum tax I think is a really interesting innovation because it's trying to ensure that there isn't essentially tax dumping going on uh, uh, worldwide and that um, we aren't incentivizing big companies essentially to move their headquarters to jurisdictions simply for tax purposes as opposed to um, being there for um, you know, genuine business reasons, you know, underlying business reasons because of the right regulatory environment, good skills, etc. Um, so that's a really interesting uh, change and, and an important agreement reached at the G7 then in the OECD and the, uh, and the G20. Um, but of course, how we deal with uh, the levels of debt that all Western countries now have as a result of coronavirus, very significant increases in the levels of debt now running at around 100% of uh, GDP. Um, and, and uh, the mixture of expenditure discipline and, uh, and taxation in order to 
bring that debt down and ensure we still have fiscal firepower for the next crisis, because coronavirus won't be the last one, there will be other crises, um, is going to be one of the big questions of politics. Personally, as I say, I would go broad and simple in our tax system if we possibly can, um, but that is fundamentally going to be uh, one of the big political questions over the next uh, few years. Interesting. I'm, I'm conscious that you have joined us from that 30-year career. Um, just in terms of initial impressions in the first six months, what sort of things can the private sector learn from the public sector in your view? Well, I think there are, there are some things that we, I mean, there are lots of things we learn from each other. We've brought a lot of private sector disciplines into government, improving commercial uh, capability, the professionalism of the human resources functions, digital and so on. I think what the private sector can um, learn from government is dealing with complexity. Governments are, are juggling lots of different interests. People often say it's obvious what we should do. Well, it's obvious to everyone what we should do, it's just that people don't agree. And so government is often reconciling those, those different um, uh, interests and, uh, uh, and perspectives and priorities. And the private sector is increase, increasingly operating in that world. If we think of the ESG agenda, which of course for many people watching this interview, they'll be thinking of through the investment lens, but if you're a chief executive of a chair or a chair of a PLC, then you're having to think really carefully about where you stand on those things. There are regulatory interventions, there are activist shareholders, there are investment priorities uh, as well. Um, and um, where a company stands, where, uh, how much responsibility companies take for their supply chain. I was talking to a German company a few months ago who has 35,000 suppliers in their supply chain. That's not untypical of big manufacturing companies. How much responsibility do they need to take for the ESG compliance right the way through that supply chain to tier three, tier, three, tier four um, uh, suppliers? So dealing with those complexities, juggling those against the overriding priority to generate revenue and profit and do good business, um, is one of the things that is, is now at the heart of the role of the C-suite, the chief exec, the chair. And actually, a, a government is used to dealing with that kind of issue and juggling those different priorities. And so I think we'll find that the, the disciplines come together. Mm. Thinking about the G part of the ESG, uh, governance and diversity and inclusion, I remember, uh, I think it was Dominic Cummings who, who said that he wanted external uh, weirdos and misfits, I That's think, right. in, in number 10. What's your feel about that? Well, actually, I always supported that. I, I remember I've, I've said on several occasions, including in parliamentary committees and so on, that while I wouldn't use the same language, <laughs> actually, the concept was absolutely right. You're trying to encourage people with different um, skills and actually, indeed, different cognitive um, uh, approaches to think of public service as an, as an option them as, a, as something that they should do at least for part of their career, particularly people who would not have contemplated it, I think it's, it's wholly admirable. So I was always keen on bringing more people into government with uh, a, a different, uh, with cognitive diversity as well as, um, uh, as, well as all the other uh, characteristics, and people with different skills and, and backgrounds. Government needs to ventilate, all big institutions need to ventilate, need to be open to different um, uh, perspectives. Um, and so, as I said, while I wouldn't necessarily have used exactly the same language as Dominic, actually, that was one of the areas on which we agreed and worked together. Very good. Very good. Well, before we, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the UK in a bit, but maybe we just broaden it. And a number of questions have already come in around foreign affairs, and in particular, China. Yeah. Now, I'm conscious you've spoken elsewhere about having a uh, calibrated approach to China. Can you develop that a little bit for us? I think we have to uh, be conscious that... 
Um, whatever views we take of China's political system, and it's a highly authoritarian system, actually that's become more authoritarian in the past few years, uh, you know, under, under this president, President Xi Jinping has cracked down at home. He's tried to secure the Communist Party's uh, grip on the economy and society uh, within China. We've seen, of course, that acutely in Hong Kong, but also in Xinjiang uh, uh, and, and other parts of China, Tibet as well. That whatever our views of, of that uh, authoritarian system, and of course its values are entirely um, discordant um, with, with ours, China is too important a country to uh, either disregard, let alone try to decouple from. It's not just China's huge economic presence, um, which is a, essentially a new feature uh, over the past 25 years, but if we want to crack the big environmental challenges, climate change, biodiversity, uh, if we want to crack the big global security challenges, I, I talked a lot to my Chinese counterparts about North Korea a couple of years ago when that particular crisis looked acute and China's influence was uh, necessary in order to try and contain it, then we have to have a relationship with China. We managed to coexist with the Soviet Union um, for periods during the, actually throughout the Cold War, uh, and Nixon and Kissinger advanced this idea of detente, not um, uh, seeking to uh, 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 find our political systems agreeing, but simply recognising that we had to coexist um, within the same planet and that democratic and authoritarian systems could be competitive with each other whilst um, avoiding uh, conflict. And I think that's the sort of situation we find ourselves in with China. Areas we must cooperate on, notably the big environmental challenges, some other global security challenges. Areas where we'll compete with them, uh, in particular uh, in uh, 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 their influence uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative, where uh, the G7 just agreed a Build Back Better World initiative in order to try and uh, improve the West's investment and connections in uh, developing uh, countries, um, uh, and areas where we will undoubtedly uh, contest, and, and in particular their human rights record uh, and some of their aggression towards their neighbours are areas we'll have to contest. But all of those things should be manageable um, within a uh, well-functioning global system. One of the questions that came through is, should we see China and indeed Russia as a threat? There are elements of Chinese behaviour that are threatening, but I don't think it's right simply to try and uh, describe, uh, for the reasons I've just set out, China in those binary terms. Russia is somewhat different. I mean, Russia is troublesome. Um, uh, they don't obviously have the same economic um, uh, impact uh, as China. Uh, they're almost seeking to maintain their place at the top table by being troublesome. And so we've seen that um, uh, in their interventions in the Middle East. Obviously, we saw it acutely with the um, attack on the Scripples in, Sol in Salisbury, their similar attack on uh, opposition leaders and so on. Uh, and they are determined to maintain uh, the Russian um, uh, influence, preferably in their view dominance, of what they describe as the near abroad, the countries of the former Soviet Union. I don't think Russia and China are, are therefore completely similar in that sense. Uh, Russia's, Russia is, is a threat um, and is almost its policies almost are designed to um, uh, present a threat uh, and therefore ensure that Russia can't be ignored. China is a wholly different, uh, operating in a wholly different uh, way and there are elements of Chinese behaviour that are threatening but there are elements of Chinese behaviour which uh, as I've said we must cooperate with. So what's your feel for after Putin, thinking about Russia a little bit more? Well, I, I think uh, that's, a, that's a potentially dangerous period. I mean, we, we worry about um, the way that President Putin conducts Russian external policy, um, you know, highly assertive, opportunistic in places like Syria and Libya, 
uh, as well as in Ukraine uh, and, and so on. Um, willing to use force, willing to use mercenaries, willing to carry out attacks like the attack in Salisbury. But that system, largely designed by him now over the past 20 years, um, is one that uh, he at least, uh, he's a very smart operator, knows how to operate. And I think there is a risk after you have a leader of that strength and dominance in an authoritarian system uh, that successors simply can't operate the system in the same way. And therefore, we could see a period of political instability in Russia um, after the Putin era comes to an end, you know, whenever that is. Uh, and that, of course, would be a risk because of the nature of the Russian state, the, the, uh, the amount of um, uh, the, the scale and nature of their defense uh, capability and so on. An unstable Russia, uh, a weak uh, political leadership in Russia, would, be, uh, would present a whole range of new risks um, different to those presented by um, a, a smart, ruthless operator like uh, the current president. There was a lot of praise for the way that the UK dealt with the Salisbury attacks. Um, maybe you could talk to us a bit about deterrence theory and how you... Well, one of the... Uh, one of the, the I mean, we could, we, this is a very long topic, but one of the, th one of the elements of deterrence theory is escalate to de-escalate. In other words, and this goes way, you know, way, way back to Sun Tzu and the military philosophers, you know, Klaus Fitz and so on. You know, they've all, they've all uh, touched on this, although obviously... Um, writing before the nuclear era, which did change uh, doctrines quite uh, substantially. But what was important after Salisbury was that essentially we realised the Russians had crossed a line that they'd never crossed uh, before. You're carrying out a chemical weapons attack, first in a century in Western Europe, against individuals on our soil, um, was uh, crossing a line that we just simply hadn't expected to be crossed. And therefore it was important to re-establish the rules by which we operate and that that line must not be crossed again. And so that was essentially what we were trying to do, restoring deterrence. Now, um, you can't, with a regime like Russia, restore that line just through agreement because, of course, they've always denied uh, it was uh, an attack carried out by their operatives. It was clearly the GRU. We, you know, we, we were able to identify that uh, pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Um, so you can't do it entirely by agreement. You have to do it by strength um, uh, and, and resolve. And so our objective was to impose a, a higher price on the Russian government than perhaps they had expected and therefore try and ensure that they, they wouldn't miscalculate again by carrying out that kind of attack again. One of the uh, other questions that came through on China um, before we talk about America was whether or not the UK should be helping some of its former colonies, um, given China's intervention and, and huge uh, help in terms of infrastructure expenditure, should the UK be getting involved too, so that China doesn't dominate that particular continent? Well, I don't think it's about former colonies particularly. Um, uh, I think our relationship with Commonwealth countries has moved well, well beyond that. But of course, we do have big aid programmes in many of those countries. And I think one of the things that we've seen um, as aid philosophy has changed is that aid shouldn't be seen as a uh, essentially an anaesthetic um, in uh, developing economies for um, issues that um, uh, are you know, fundamental issues that haven't haven't been uh, haven't been tackled um, aid should be about um, enabling those economies to make a transition to attract uh, the much larger funds that are available through private sector investment uh, and development um, encouraging 
uh, people to get good jobs and develop employment and so on, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, which by the middle of the century will be the only part of the world that doesn't have an ageing population, so it's going to be increasingly important both as a source of production and actually as a consumer uh, market. Um, and so I think the UK should be active in um, those uh, countries. We obviously have a natural relationship with former uh, with Commonwealth countries, with, with um, you know, those that share our legal systems and, and so on, uh, but not just in those. And I think uh, what I'd like to see is us using aid and diplomacy to encourage more private sector uh, investment. So it isn't state-to-state -state competition, but actually the democratic market system competing with the authoritarian system. Okay. Thank you. And turning to the US, we've, had, we've got a new president. How do you think he's getting on? Well, I, th uh, I think you saw at the G7 um, a real change of um, uh, tone and approach to his, uh, to his predecessor. Um, uh, he's pursuing a radical agenda domestically, and uh, that is obviously politically challenging given how close uh, the numbers are in Congress. He's just passed a, a very ambitious executive order, um, uh, essentially echoing the, the first uh, President Roosevelt's um, antitrust um, uh, uh, agenda. Um, uh, uh, but he's having to do that through executive order, at least in the short term, because um, it isn't possible with a Congress which is evenly split in the Senate um, and where you really need 60 of the 100 senators to um, support major legislation, uh, that, he, that he still needs to try and build that consensus across the uh, political uh, system. I think what is striking from the UK and US point of view is that actually the overall agenda tackling climate change, um, um, uh, working on global security and global economic issues together is one on which uh, this administration and the, and, and the British government are quite naturally partners, notwithstanding the fact they you know, come from you know, slightly different political traditions. So you think the special relationship is still alive and, and well? Well, a bit like the Prime Minister, I'm not so, I've, I've always been slightly sceptical of the phrase because I think we overuse it and sometimes do come across as a bit needy, you know, that you, you know, have they said the special relationship enough? Um, the fundamentals of that relationship are as strong as ever and actually were just as strong through the previous administration, throughout the Trump administration, notwithstanding some of the ups and downs uh, that we had overall. Actually, it was a very uh, good relationship with that administration. Um, but the fundamentals are there, the defence and intelligence uh, relationship, the fact that we are the biggest investors in each other's country, a million Americans employed by British companies and America, a million Brits employed by American uh, companies and so on. And if anything, uh, as we look at the challenges in the world, whether that's climate change or the rise of China or in all the more acute threats pre presented by Russia in the North Atlantic, actually we've seen the two countries and their systems work even more closely together and I would expect that to continue. And do you think there's the potential for um, Trump-like populism to, 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 to come back again? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that isn't just a feature of the United States politics. We've seen that elsewhere as well. The French election next year is really interesting. Mm. Marine Le Pen last time won, what, 35-ish percent of the vote in the second round. That's twice what her father won uh, only you know, 15 years before. And that was against a fresh, young, charismatic politician like uh, um, President Macron, uh, whereas her father was um, uh, you know, up against a, a, you know, a rather more sort of establishment figure in, in President uh, Chirac. And so, and there are parts of France where the uh, National Front, now renamed, but the National Front um, has really dug in. And those are parts of France where uh, people essentially feel left behind. They feel the system hasn't worked for them, that globalisation 
um, hasn't benefited them. And that's again a feature that's become more apparent really since the financial crisis. And in, and in a sense, the government interventions to protect the economies um, through COVID um, have uh, probably dampened some of those issues down. But at some point, they will come back again, that, that, um, that in all of our countries, uh, there are people for whom globalisation has not really worked. And that's why in the UK, you know, this government, uh, the current government has talked about levelling up, not just uh, across the country, but different cohorts of our society. It's the agenda that uh, the American government's pursuing. Actually, it was the agenda that President Trump himself articulated. So I think populism um, is um, a, a feature of our politics across the Western world that um, is here to stay for a while, and it will remain until we can show that the economic model that um, the mainstream parties have always pursued is working again and working for the, for the, the whole of society. Mm, mm. Thinking about the G7, because you were, you, you were looking very closely at economic security uh, during that, one of the questions that has come through is, how political is it? Are the politicians on top of the agenda? Is it unscripted? Is it in English? These are sorts, can you peel back the curtain a little bit for us? Well, the G, uh, one of the benefits of the G7, people question whether the G7 is still relevant, given the scale of China now uh, in, the, in the global economy. Um, and of course, the, the nature of global, uh, the, of global politics. When the G7 was first established, it was actually the G5 back in the 1970s. These were the world's biggest economies, and of course they aren't now. But they are the world's biggest democratic economies. And, uh, uh, and I think that remains a really important grouping. The G7 as a whole, if you include um, essentially the EU uh, in it, not just the, the seven countries, but the EU is represented as well at the G7 by the the two presidents the, of the Commission and the Council. So if you think of the G7 really now being the two big continental Western economies, the United States and the European Union, and the three biggest independent uh, advanced economies, Japan, the UK and Canada, add Australia and South Korea, who attended this time, and of course we had South Africa and India as well, and you have well over half the world economy. Uh, and you have the world's biggest um, democratic players as well, and all important members of the G20. So I think it, is a, it remains an important group. Um, what's good about it as, a, uh, as an institution is it's small enough and the leaders know each other well enough that they can still have informal conversations. And one of the benefits, the odd benefits of holding the first G7 in a couple of years during COVID was that it had to be stripped back. Um, uh, at times, the G7 has become this enormous jamboree of formality and you know, side events and all the rest of it. And actually, I think that was probably not the right way to go. Stripping it back, um, having a smaller and more intimate uh, session at Carbis Bay, which is a you know, great part of the UK, but is not somewhere you can hold a massive summit on the scale that we'll see in Glasgow later mm. uh, this year, enabling the leaders to have more intimate conversations with each other in in a, uh, in a more enclosed uh, setting, I think was really valuable because they can get to know each other and they can have much more informal and interchange type conversations. And that's really important uh, if you're looking at the issues that they're dealing with. And do you think it achieved enough? Yeah, I think it did. It was a pretty ambitious agenda, actually. Um, I mean, you can look at any one of the items and say, oh, they should have gone further on climate change. They should have gone further on vaccines. They should have gone further on economic resilience. They should have gone further on um, uh, um, R&D investment, they should have gone further on the Build Back Better World initiative and so on. And of course you can say that, um, but actually in each of those areas there were steps forward and, and the breadth of that agenda I think was genuinely 
um, ambitious and overall, I think, um, a pretty good outcome. Just the fact that the G7 met again and was in harmony was important, not just because of the disruption of COVID, which prevented there being really meetings, proper meetings over the past couple of years, but of course it had been um, a, a, a meeting which was you know, essentially dominated by contention over the previous couple of years. And is it potentially a bit top-down? I mean, what role does civil society, the private sector, potentially have in, in, in alongside the G7? Well, there are other groupings mm -hmm. um, that, that uh, sort of organise themselves in order to support the G7, and indeed the G20. So you have the B7, the Business 7, you know, all the big uh, business representative organisations, um, the C7, civil society, you know, etc. Um, and, uh, and, and others as well. Actually, one of the um, recommendations of the, uh, the panel I led on economic resilience more generally was that the G7 um, it needed to engage more with, the, with those uh, representative groups um, in advance of the summits rather than, the, rather than it simply being intergovernmental that we did need to bring those other groups more into the process and certainly in the panel I chaired um, we did a great deal of engagement with business, with civil society, with academia etc as we wrestled with the um, the, the, the questions that we were uh, working on. And that's one of the recommendations we had in our Cornwall consensus document was more of that um, outreach. That doesn't mean you go back to massive summits with everybody attending, uh, but it does mean you need more of that input. And I think, uh, I think that would be valuable. Well, let's talk about climate change before we yeah. uh, go on to the UK domestic uh, situation. I was struck over the weekend by the number of articles saying, yes, we get the argument, but are we ready? This is going to be a big, big cost. What's your sense around that? Are citizens ready for what this transition actually means? I'm not sure anyone is really, uh, because the scale of the transition is unprecedented. We've seen already a very big change in power generation in this country. Actually, we're ahead of most other countries there in greening our, our uh, power generation. But of course, it's much more than that. It's industry and housing and land use. Uh, and transport and so on, and there are going to be dramatic changes over the next 25 years required if we're to hit the net zero uh, commitment by, uh, by 2050. Most other countries, by the way, are going to have to make even more dramatic changes. If you look at this from the Chinese perspective, um, they've committed to do achieve the same by 2060, only 10 years behind us, but starting from a place where their power generation is more dominated by coal um, and their economy is still um, uh, 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 um, further back in terms of any potential green transition. And that's true of other, others as well. Um, I think the, 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 those articles at the weekend pointing out the cost, the scale of the investment required to take the country through this transition are right to highlight those issues. It, it is a dramatic change. But also I think it would be wrong to think that, um, uh, you know, as sometimes people have in the past, that economic activity is a single lump and a pound spent on green transition is a pound that isn't spent on something else. Actually, you generate economic activity through investment. And so um, if we're smart about this, we can invest in the green transition. That will generate growth and generate activity rather than it simply being a, a, a trade-off in a sort of fixed pot uh, of money available. But I think uh, notwithstanding the fact that if we get that right, it can be good for the economy, the scale of the transition the, the, the way that industries and, and um, housing and, and infrastructure and transport and so on are going to have to change is probably uh, something that not many people really yet appreciate. So there is the potential for um, policy makers to be moving more quickly than the populace, if you like. 
Well, I think, I think policymakers are reflecting a strong um, desire among the population mm. to uh, address this agenda. Mm. And, and if you look at the way that um, uh, green issues are at the top of the uh, uh, at the top of the list of issues of concern, particularly among the, gener the younger uh, generation. I mean, not just climate change, other other environmental issues uh, as well, biodiversity, uh, pollution, plastics in the oceans. All, all of these issues are uh, are of increasing uh, increasing prominence. So I think the political system is reflecting public appetite. There is a risk if it's mismanaged that there that. Um, uh, uh, that, that the costs will uh, of that transition and, and the fact that, that um, the disruption that inevitably comes from any transition of this scale um, could uh, cause um, some to, um, um, to, to a sort of oppose the overall uh, policy. And again, the political system will need to, um, need to reconcile, um, reconcile that. Um, but uh, overall, I think the political system is reflecting a, a public appetite. That said, it's still it, you know, the the scale of the transition, the nature of it, the investment required, um, is um, uh, is unprecedented, and that's going to require uh, some very big decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, thinking domestically now, and we're, we've been touching on this theme of instability and stability, Brexit. Obviously, you were involved in those negotiations, yeah. and you've seen it up close and personal. Do you see it as a an opportunity or a threat? Well, Brexit has to be an opportunity. The decision's taken. The population, the voters decided five years ago now that this was the new course for, uh, for this country. And therefore the task of everybody, whether in business, uh, whether in government, whether in politics, is to ensure that Brexit is an opportunity and that we exploit the opportunities that the Brexit uh, moment uh, gives, this, uh, gives this country. And so whether that's new trade deals, whether that's looking at our regulatory systems, whether it's managing the green transition in, a, in an intelligent uh, way, it has to be an opportunity uh, for this country if we're going to continue to prosper. Okay. We've had a couple of questions come in on um, the structure of the civil service. Mm. There's been a report out about maybe um, creating an office of number 10, having chief executives um, who can be um, hired in from outside, non-MPs as ministers. What's your uh, opinion on that? I think these are all you know, interesting ideas, um, uh, you know, worth, worth uh, pursuing. I think fundamentally, though, the big questions about government are, um, uh, are about the overall uh, structure and role of government. Uh, we have to really uh, uh, tackle the relationship between Westminster and the devolved administrations, uh, between Westminster and local government within England, which still remains uh, highly centralised compared to uh, many other countries, notwithstanding the metro mayors in London, Manchester, Birmingham, uh, uh, etc., uh, and come to some kind of stable settlement of those issues. Uh, my own view is that central government is too federated. We have too many departments, too big a cabinet. Um, I've often uh, remarked that uh, the British cabinet is twice the size of the American cabinet, four times the size of the Chinese um, uh, Politburo Standing Committee, which is essentially the, 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 the key uh, decision-making body uh, in, uh, in China, and much bigger than it used to be um, you know, a century uh, ago. And that does, does undermine, I think, the coherence of uh, government. And of course, then you can strengthen uh, the team around the Prime Minister. Um, you can uh, make changes to the machine itself. But actually some of these underlying questions are probably the bigger ones that we need to address. And it's a question not of civil service reform, um, uh, it's largely a question I think of government uh, reform. I rather favour bringing in more uh, outsiders, whether those should always be in ministerial roles 
Um, some some should, some you know, some don't need to be. Gordon Brown brought in uh, people goats. memorably described as the goats, the yeah. government of all of towns, mm -hmm. former business people and so on. I think that's a good thing. We've got a, uh, a currently a, a, a minister in the Trade Department, uh, Jerry Grimston, who's had a very distinguished business uh, career. So, I mean, these things have happened um, uh, many times over the years. I think that can, you know, that, that, uh, that ventilation is a good thing. Um, but in the end, um, the idea that, that ministers are accountable through Parliament um, to the democratic process is an important one. And so if we bring outsiders in, they do need to uh, remain accountable. You mentioned devolution, uh, and I'm thinking about the independent situation in Scotland. Is the civil service um, capable of dealing with, with an independent Scotland, and what effect would that have? Well, I very much hope that we don't have to deal with that uh, because um, I, I think the, the Union of the UK is a, uh, a, a remarkable source of our strength uh, in the world. And so um, I, yeah, I very much hope we can persuade um, uh, every citizen of the UK to commit uh, to the Union, put aside whenever you know, democratic processes might or might not happen. It's really important that people are, are committed uh, to, the, uh, to the Union. The civil service is a UK-wide civil service. Um, we think very much in those uh, those terms. I think that's one of our sources of strength. Of course, the civil servants in Scotland support the Scottish government, and that's a nationalist government, and they, they will support them in pursuing their policies just as they would uh, any other government. But uh, overall, the civil service is part of uh, uh, the governance of the United Kingdom. It is a single institution. I think that's uh, one of its strengths. One of the questions that's come in is, um, what were the starkest differences in diplomatic style between some of the Labour ministers you worked with and the Tory ministers? I don't think it's really about party political issues. Actually, diplomatic style is very much down to the, uh, down to the individuals. And so you have prime ministers who operate in, and, and foreign secretaries who just operate in different, uh, in different ways. So you know, Robin Cook who, and Jack Straw, for whom I was many years ago, who were both foreign secretaries and I was private secretary to both of them, both Labour foreign secretaries, really, really different personal styles, really different ways of um, operating in the uh, diplomatic world. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, again, different kinds of personality and different ways of operating. So um, actually, the differences are, are, are much less about the party political affiliation of uh, the prime minister or the foreign secretary of the government and so on, and more about the, the, way, that people, um, the way that people interact and deal with their fellow leaders. Mm. Another question that has come in about the UK is whether foreign ownership of British businesses is a strength or a weakness, um, and if there's a suitor country that we would prefer to work with, in your opinion. Well, I don't think we should have a suitor country, um, uh, although obviously there's quite a lot of news at the moment about, in particular, US private equity investing in the UK, and you know, we can get into the structural reasons for that if you like, although there'll be many people watching this who are much more expert in that than I, but you know, areas, you know, issues such as the nature of quantitative easing and so on. But the UK has always had an open economy. I mean, it's really been our economic tradition for several hundred years. We are, depending on how you measure it, the most globalized economy in the G20 um, overall, if you look at a whole range of different uh, measures. And that means openness to foreign direct investment. It also, of course, means uh, that the UK is a major investor overseas. Actually, the flows of investment um, um, are roughly one and a half, you know, three to two, one and a half to one, um, outward from the UK into other countries. So while we have a huge amount of FDI inward, we have an even bigger amount of FDI 
um, outward, and that's traditionally been a source of uh, uh, strength for our economy. Uh, and I think remaining open and remaining able to exploit those opportunities ourselves is an important source of um, uh, prosperity for, for the economic model we've had, as I say, for several hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Mark, just thinking about your, your, your personal role uh, in Afghanistan, what's your opinion of what's going on there at the moment? Well, I'm worried. Um, uh, uh, I think almost every attempt to foreshorten the conflict in Afghanistan um, has probably ended up prolonging it. Prolonging it. Actually, um, uh, uh, um, investing in the governance there over many years was the right thing to do. Uh, we were probably too late in um, actually seeking to transition authority to the Afghans themselves. That was the major uh, program that I was responsible for when I was the NATO representative there, was seeking to transition authority to the Afghans, build up their capability, because I realised, uh, as others did, that um, having been there for 10 years at that stage, we'd probably, uh, we were probably becoming part of the problem as well as part of the, uh, part of the solution. Uh, but I'm you know, clearly, as anyone who's been involved in Afghanistan is, is, I'm really concerned about the advance of the Taliban, the fact that um, the government forces are under very severe pressure. There are news reports this morning, which I think are probably right, that some of the old warlords, the power brokers and so on, are rearming their uh, militias. And that, that's probably uh, inevitable, given uh, the pressure uh, the actual national security forces are coming under, but there are risks from that as well, as we saw with the civil war uh, of uh, the 90s. I don't think we should assume that it will go badly wrong uh, in Afghanistan. I don't think we should assume that the Taliban uh, will take over. Uh, advancing in the rural areas is a different um, uh, challenge to trying to take, uh, take the cities, but I do fear that Afghanistan is in for a period of extreme uh, violence. It will probably um, there will probably, uh, uh, towards the end of this fighting season, uh, we'll see whether there is a stalemate and then whether there's an opportunity to pursue the political, political process for, uh, thereafter. But it's a really worrisome moment. As well as Afghanistan, uh, one of the questions has come through on, on the Middle East as a sensitive area. Where are you in your thinking on that in terms of... Well, the Middle East is a whole. <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that's a lot of different questions. Quite. Of course, there are different challenges in North Africa. Um, Arab Israel, um, the I think Gulf, about Arab Israel. Um, uh, and of course Iran. Uh, and all of these things are connected. I mean, one of the most striking shifts in the Middle East in the past five to ten years has been the way that um, the dominant issue has been, uh, has, has been less the Arab Israel question, and in particular the Palestinian question, and increasingly the Iran question. Uh, and that's partly why the Abraham Accords, where we've seen Israel's relationships with many of the uh, Gulf Arab states um, uh, improve the way they had already with Jordan, Egypt, um, etc., is really driven by that coincidence of interest in dealing with the threat to the stability of that region um, presented by Iran, including, of course, in, uh, in relation to the Palestinian question itself. Um, I, I don't see much sign of progress on the Palestinian question, I'm afraid, uh, at the moment. Um, I think that's partly because um, of the domestic politics in Israel and, of, and among the Palestinians uh, themselves. Um, the, 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 that, that situation you know, has essentially been in a, in, a, in a period of stasis, really, for quite some, uh, quite some years. Um, and given the preoccupations that, um, in particular, the Arab governments have, I think, with that bigger question, for them at least, of... Uh, Iran, um, I'm afraid I don't see um, much opportunity for progress on the Israel-Palestinian question in the short term. Mm -hmm.
I'm conscious we have time for one more question, so maybe on, a, on an upbeat note, would you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist in the context of what we've been discussing and, uh, and security looking ahead? I'm, I think I'm an optimistic realist, um, uh, but I'm always, I think I am always optimistic. I think one has to be, mm. um, because it's, it's, actually, if you look at the course of you know, human history, but actually, if you look at some of the, the fundamentals, um, actually, there is really good you know, cause for optimism. We've seen over the past 20 or 30 years more people lifted out of poverty than at any time in world history. Um, uh, we've, uh, we've been able to tackle the biggest health crisis um, uh, in our and indeed several um, uh, lifetimes. Uh, we have recovered from uh, the financial crisis. We've managed to deal with the threats that have arisen from 9-11. I'm, I'm confident that we can manage this Thucydides question of the relationship between the West and China if we're smart about it. Um, we are getting our teeth into the questions of climate change. The technological revolution offers big challenges, but huge uh, opportunities uh, for us as well. So fundamentally, um, actually, I think uh, you know, if we look, at, if we look um, you know, 25 years ahead to the middle part of the century, it's going to be a challenging period, but I'm pretty confident that we'll see that you know, the world is in better shape than it is now, and, um, and the rising generation will do an even better job than the ones before them. Mark, thank you so much. That's been a very wide-ranging discussion from the UK, Russia, China, climate change, G7, optimism, realism. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. A really great conversation with Lord Mark Sedwell, indeed. His closing comments of cautious optimism and positive realism certainly ring true with me. And that's a Rothschild & Co. soundbite if ever there was one. If you enjoyed this episode, do be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive the latest episodes as we publish them. Thank you very much. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.